Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and also, I'm a pearl. No, wait, a river. No, I'm a drug. I am a terrible and inconsistent <laughs> metaphor. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, just an empty man looking for a woman to blame. <laughs> that is my dog, Exley, and he may have some opinions during this podcast. We're just going to leave him in. Mm-hmm. I hope no one minds. Yes. And this podcast is Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of political science and post-colonialism. Today, we'll be talking about the movie Reminiscence. We are next doing The End of October by Lawrence Wright. Coincidentally, I think that's more cli-fi, isn't it, Dan? Uh, I don't want to give too much away. It's not exactly cli-fi, though. All right. It's more, it's more pandemic-fi. Pandemic-fi. We're doing pan-fi. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And we're also going to do the Fantasy Island reboot. And we have plans, but we're always taking suggestions you can tweet at us your suggestions. I am at Anna Marie Cox. Dan is at Dan Dresner. And the Twitter account we don't really use is at underscore Space the Nation. We also take suggestions via our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Space the Nation. And one of the benefits of actually joining our Patreon is being in our Discord channel, which is mm-hmm. lively and fun. And people talk about ideas and we have taken ideas from it. Mm-hmm. You should become a patron for a lot of reasons, though. Dan, can you think of some? Well, among other things, you get early access to episodes. You get some merch, which is kind of cool. You can participate in our AMAs, which we normally do the first Saturday of every month. Although, in this case, we'll be doing it uh, the second Saturday of the month. And, of course, when we get to 250 patrons, we will do a patron-only episode on a topic chosen by the patrons. We are more than halfway there, so please... Tell your friends to become patrons. Tell them also to like our podcast because we hear that, you know. Yeah, is rate a good and thing. review. That's a good way to help That's us get it. to more patrons. So rate yes. and review wherever you get your podcast. So you might be wondering, why are we doing Reminiscence, which is available uh, for viewing on HBO Max? And the reason is very simple. Anna likes sci-fi noir, and this is sci-fi noir, and Anna gets what she wants. <laughs> I do. We have discussed on other episodes that there is a fairly limited amount of content in the genre of sci-fi noir. So when this comes out, I mean, I got to gotta look at it. Yeah. Fortunately, I also really like Hugh Jackman. Mm. And he saves this movie to the extent this movie can be saved. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dissent slightly. I, I, Hugh Jackman was fine. For me, it's Tandy Newton. Oh, she was also very good. She like, was extremely these good. These are two, and I, good, yeah. two actors, two very good actors. I don't know if yes. I, I put Hugh Jackman in great, maybe, but two very watchable actors, let's yes. say, in a story that you keep on kind of waiting yeah. to s- make sense slash Well, you're on, a, you're on a journey, Anna. Yes, you're on I a mean, journey. You know. <laughs> you're going someplace you've been before. Yeah. This is a point where I, we should say whether or not people should watch the movie. You will get our jokes more if you watch the movie. I think the movie, let me put it this way, the, the movie is not awful. I don't think it's good, but it but it is watchable, and it's certainly on HBO. It is not a movie I would describe as theater-worthy. It is a movie that is entirely appropriate if it's Saturday night at 10 o'clock and yeah. you don't have anything better to watch. Yeah, and, and mainly, I would say mainly because of Hugh Jackman and Thandie Newton, but also the cinematography is actually pretty good. Yes, and there's so, some interesting visuals. There are yeah. legitimately some interesting visuals. Yeah, so I guess we're, we're on like a, if you have nothing to do on Saturday night, watch it. Don't stop this podcast right now and watch it. That's our recommendation. Right, that's a okay. good way of putting it. All right. But let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, my understanding is that this film is Nolan adjacent? It is Jonathan Nolan adjacent. Ah, there you go. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Nolan is Chris Nolan, the more famous Nolan that you might have been thinking of. Mm-hmm. Younger brother. 
And the director, I believe he is the one who's the director of Memento, right? No. No, Chris, uh, that, that was Chris Nolan. The, right, that yeah, was exactly Nolan's. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonathan is the younger brother of the a little bit more famous Chris Nolan. And director Lisa Joy met Jonathan Nolan at the premiere of Memento, which is was Chris Nolan's big breakout, the film that's kind of backwards. And she had then the thought, I want to do something about memory. <laughs> Which, okay. <laughs> That's fair. Totally fair. Yeah. Uh, she and Jonathan actually are the people behind Westworld, which I didn't mm-hmm. know. I guess I mm-hmm. just recognized that it's patriarchy trains us all. I only remembered the, the dude. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she comes from TV, though. Pushing Daisies and Burn Notice are the shows that she worked on. Huh, I'm okay. kind of doing this stuff because it's interesting that this is her first film. Mm-hmm. It's pretty huge. Like they planned yes. to do this as a theatrical release. It was supposed to be like a big movie, and some of the way they filmed it, you can t- tell that it's supposed to be a big movie. Mm-hmm. But her story about it is: I'm going to quote: <laughs> "I was a penniless writer director with a dream, and Hugh Jackman threw his lot in with me, which was huge." Sure. I don't know yeah. if that, I, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to diss another woman, another working woman, but, <laughs> but. I kind of feel like she probably had a pretty good shot at making this movie no matter what. Yeah, this is where it, it starts to get a little awkward in terms of like, I, I don't mean to, I wouldn't diss this either, but generally speaking, if you've been created Westworld and you are... You Nolan know, adjacent? Nolan adjacent, as it were. Your yeah. odds are probably going to be better than average. That would be the way I would put it, maybe, <laughs> you know. And then a couple of things she said about the movie, which is are interesting to me, and maybe we'll talk again after we finish up, is that she considers Reminiscence to have two happy endings. I don't know how I feel about the endings endings of this movie, actually, and we will talk I, about them. All I could say is it's a podcast, so you can't hear me cringe, but I am cringing, in fact. Yeah, it's a, that's a really odd way to describe the end of this movie. Yeah. Also, of Rebecca Ferguson, Lisa Joy said that she and Rebecca talked about how hard it is under the gaze of a world that makes so many suppositions about you, especially if you're a beautiful woman like Rebecca. Yes. Beautiful women <laughs> suffer too. <laughs> but this seems like a really odd thing for a movie to take up as a cause. <laughs> it's not just that. It, how do I put this? I, I, I'm not going to dispute that. Beautiful women suffer from certain prejudices yes, or yeah, whatever. To- totally. Yeah. But that said, your choice to demonstrate that is a film noir? I mean, With that's... a woman dressing in incredibly sexy and revealing gowns? Yeah, that's a... I guess, I, let me I mean, put it this way, I, uh, that's true. It just doesn't bear any relationship, I think, to the actual Yeah, movie. that's that's kind of how I feel about this, is that I pre- feel like, you know, I studied male gaze shit mm-hmm. in college. That was not something I saw, at least, in this movie. Like, they were trying <laughs> to deal with that, right? Yeah. The last thing I'll say, and this, I think, is the most interesting thing. She is half Taiwanese, half British. Oh, okay. That's not the interesting thing. But mm. her grandfather named his house she's a penniless writer director whose grandfather had a house big enough to be named anyway yeah named his house suki lin and after he died she discovered a photograph with a a picture of a woman with a name on the back of it suki lin oh so 
her I don't know if she ever confirmed that her grandfather named his house after this woman in his past. But that is an interesting thing and very noirish. That could be its own movie. I would say that's actually a great backstory for a film. Yeah. Yeah. In and of but itself. that's not the backstory she chose. That is not no. the plot she chose, Dan. I'm going to say one thing about you with you doing the plot summary. Yeah. For a time travel-ish memory, uh, you know, obsessed movie, this is actually rather easy to recount, <laughs> I think. <laughs> like... It is. Actually, I'll leave it this way. There, there are movies where me doing the plot recap is very, very difficult. This was not one of them. Yeah, and I think, I don't really, I mean, it's not that plots should be difficult. It's just right. that this movie does nothing <laughs> with its technology. Yes. Let's put it you this way. The I mean? reason, no, like, here's the way I would put it. We are doing this movie because it is legitimately sci-fi. It is set in the future. Right. There are sci-fi elements to it. The weird thing is they have almost nothing to do with the plot itself. Yeah. And I think that's the bizarre aspect of this, yeah. um, which we will talk about a little bit. Let's get to the plot. Act one, you're starting a journey. So it is sometime in the future, and climate change has exacted its toll on the world. Miami is now a mostly sunken city, although land barons have snapped up most of the land above sea level. It's so hot now that most of daily life takes place at night. Meet Nick Bannister, played by Hugh Jackman. He's a veteran who specialized in interrogation while in the military. With the world going to shit, folks are investing in reliving memories of a simpler time, I guess. Nick operates a facility that enables this while occasionally doing contract work for the police. Nick does the psychological prompting of the subject while Nick's girl Friday, Emily Watts Sanders, uh, operates the equipment when she is not hitting the bottle. One day there's a walk-in client, May. Now, you're not going to believe this, but she's a beautiful <laughs> Shantusi who needs help finding her missing keys. That's easily done, but she leaves her earrings behind, and Nick goes to the club she works at to return them. You're not going to believe this again, but it turns out there's chemistry between the two of them, and they do start becoming an item. Wow. Yeah, I know. Like... It's, it's, yeah, it's, I was blown away by that fact. Anna, I did like how they used climate change to turn Miami from what ordinarily would be a sort of day-glow neon kind of city to a relatively perfect setting point for a film noir. That said, the film did not work well for me for many reasons, but I think the biggest one is Rebecca Ferguson. She seemed all wrong for the femme fatale. She, and maybe it's because I'm looking for a classic femme fatale, which you would expect in noir, but, and she was not, to me, playing that. But I'm curious for your thoughts on this. I agree. And what I would say is looks-wise, sure. Oh, yeah. No, no. no. I, this is like, not a knock-on. Right, right. Rebecca looks Ferguson wise, is a... After yeah. all, she is a beautiful woman. She is a beautiful woman. People yeah. make suppositions about her. Right. By the way, suppositions about her that turn out to be entirely correct. In the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, she subverts no expectations whatsoever. Like, everything about her is telegraphed in neon letters, you know? I have one objection to that, but we'll get to that when we get to the plot. Okay, but yes, her character, the way she played the character, she was in a different movie. Yeah. You know, she was like in a romance movie. Right. And I don't know how, I mean, I'm not sophisticated enough about acting to kind of tell you what would the difference would have been, but it just seemed out of place all the time. Like, even they were joking about their chemistry. They have no chemistry, actually. No, like, they don't. They like, really don't. And this is, these are not unattractive people. They're good-looking people. They, you know, and they're good actors as well. This is not a knock on either of them. But just, yeah. They don't, they didn't. But it feels incredibly go. stiff and yeah. also out of nowhere. 
Yes, the private eye or, you know, whoever plays that character of the investigator is supposed to fall in love with the femme fatale. But give us like a minute of sexual tension. Yeah. Give us like a day of it. Like it just it's for something to build up. Yeah. And instead, it's just like literally the second time they meet. They go to bed together. Here's the way I would put it. I believe that Hugh Jackman was obsessed with her and like was in love with her. But I believed it. More when she wasn't on the screen. <laughs> that is actually, that is, I agree. Yeah. Then the other thing I want to talk about a little bit, it's it's interesting, for not a very good movie, I think there is a lot to talk about. Yeah. I don't think they used the cli-fi conceit very well. No, they did not. It's a legitimately it's a, it's interesting a great, conceit. Actually, it's a, it's a great thing to ha- kind of have as a Philip. Right, know, and, the, and I, I again, I, the first you you get this sense in the first ten minutes of the film where you see literally a lot of Miami is either underwater or like there's water on the streets and like clearly there are parts that are uninhabitable. It's a legitimately interesting premise, but they don't do anything with it. They don't do anything with it, and not only that, they show no fidelity to the concept. Yeah, I mean, to me, <laughs> there is sort of an interesting idea, and I'm not even sure how it would work out by making this like a film blanc. Or something like to completely subvert it in some visual way, mainly. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, t- the look of a film noir to somehow actually to go with day glow, right? Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. might have actually been interesting, right? But people are doing things at all times of the day in this movie. <laughs> no, this is this is another problem with the movie. There's no fidelity to the premise. Is yeah, yes, it, it, you know, it's supposed to be too hot during the day to do anything, and Hugh Jackman is walking around in a long sleeve shirt and pants all the time. Yes, exactly. You know, and also he doesn't seem to sleep because he's out doing stuff at night. He's out doing stuff for the day. Well, that I accept. In a noir world, I accept the idea that like the detective. Well, except that he's doing things all the time. That's like yes. Yes. There's no fidelity. Like I said, there's no fidelity to the to the idea, and I do think they should have done something to make the day seem more oppressive or dangerous or whatever. You know. Mm-hmm. Like that, and that sunburn or something, or like, yeah, no, I agree. That's that's absolutely correct. The gla- like you know, f- camera glare, like make it feel hot, make it yeah. feel miserable, you know. Have someone's shoes like melted. Yes, maybe not feel disgusting, but you know what I mean. You know where I was going. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know where you were going. No, no, no. Again, and it's the weird thing where like it's these, it's almost like there are two movies mashed together. One is the standard noir movie, which unfortunately is not very good, and then the other is this interesting cli-fi thing. But the problem is, is that there's a surface way in which it contributes to the plot. But other than that, like the noir is all about mood and the weird thing is, is that while the, as intriguing as the premise is, you don't get the mood. That's the way I would put it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. There is a thing called Daylight Noir, and it's not a very, you know, well-trod genre. But the, a really good example of it is Out of the Past with Burt mm. Lancaster. Okay. And it's fantastic. Most of it takes place in daylight. But mm. it w- winds up generating that same feeling of tension, I think, mm-hmm. that's, that's really a part of noir. And has, like, you know, femme fatale and voices from the past and all of that. So, yeah, I was just kind of disappointed that they didn't try harder to yeah. make it feel more, to make it feel more noir in daylight, basically, right? Yeah. Which is no, what they seem to be, at least as narration goes. <laughs> but again, this is where, like, it was like they would say things in narration and then you wouldn't, like they said, it's uncomfortable to be around, you know, up and around during the day. That makes sense given the climate situation. And yet, as you point out, half of the film takes place during the day. Yeah. 
Let's move on to Act 2, Gunfight at the New Orleans Corral. So, uh, Nick and May are in love, and, you know, imagine a montage of them all over Miami. At all times of day. At all times of day, you know, smooching in the tall grass, which ends brutally with a smash cut to Nick in the memory tank, reliving his memories with May because she skipped town and it's been a few months. So Nick is clearly holding on to the memories. Uh, Watts, who's an alcoholic, knows addictive behavior when she sees it, and clearly Nick is hooked. So Nick and Watts help out DA Avery Castillo to revive the memories of a comatose accessory, uh, hoping to find some dirt on a New Orleans drug lord named St. Joe. In the memory, who shows up but, wait for it, May. Um, I know, I know, I know. This clearly uh, preceded Nick's time with her. In the memory, we learn that May was working as a waitress in a club after London was apparently flooded and she migrated to New Orleans. She becomes St. Joe's mistress, crosses paths with a crooked cop named Cyrus Booth, Joe gets May hooked on Baca, which is a super addictive narcotic that we never, ever, 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 <laughs> ever, 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 ever see anyone actually high on, especially that, May. Again, as an alcoholic addict, that really bothered me. It, I'm always curious about the future drugs and what they're supposed to do to you. As someone who is not an alcoholic, that also really bothered me. Because <laughs> the whole point is that May is supposed to be like this wasted, you know... And not be able to hide it. It's supposed not to be, be able so- to hide it. Yeah. And, you know, and again, maybe this is partly the British accent. I kept looking at her thinking, you know, you don't look high in any way whatsoever. So I'm just not or, buying Or this. fucked up or or, yeah. or or desperate or no. any of the things that someone who is a... Is a you look impeccably dressed and impeccably tailored. Well, yes, like, it's look just- at Fanny Newton. We yeah. believe her. We believe that she's an alcoholic yes, because she's absolutely. playing an alcoholic. She is acting... Acting, and we, and we believe that Hugh Jackman is hooked on memories. Yes. Like the two of them actually do the addiction really well. Rebecca Ferguson, I don't know what direction she was given. I I, I don't know who where the blame falls. She does not play an act. Yeah. It was incredibly annoying, yeah. even though she is supposed to be an actor. Okay. All right. The important thing is is that May steals uh, Saint Joe's stash of baca and then skips town to Miami. Nick travels to New Orleans to get more information about May from Joe. This does not go well, and Nick would have drowned in a fish tank of eels if it wasn't for the (laughs) fact that Watts shows up uh, to participate in a John Woo-style fight in which Nick lives, Joe dies, and of course the eel tank gets shot. Anna, I did like how the film treats nostalgia as another narcotic, both in the physical and psychological cues. Like, there's a scene where you actually see Nick, like, go to, like, a secret chamber to get, like, the, the collection of memory discs. Yeah, and that, that actually felt really good. But as we were just talking about, you know, did, did that work for you or not? Yes and no. Hugh Jackman's addiction to memory did play to me like an addiction. Like, he was acting like an addict. Like, we're just saying. Yes. Like, yeah. and it could have been to anything, actually. Right. He was playing an addict. If you had put a bottle in his hand, I would have believed it. If you'd put, you know, mm-hmm. cocaine in his, hand, in his hand, I would have believed it. Or it's hard to hold cocaine, but, you know. <laughs> and also, like we said, Fandy Newton. Yeah. And I, and I think in that way, the reason why it's, he's so believable is that is that the film with both Fandy Newton and Hugh Jackman shows the lengths to which an addict will sink. Yes. To get their drug or to cover up or to to get away from pain. It shows us that once the addiction becomes primary in your life, you lose everything else, right? You understand both the cost and the rationale of the addiction for both of those characters. I think that that's the best thing about the movie in some ways. Right. Now, do I agree with the metaphor? <laughs> 
Um, like, do I think that memory is a drug? This is something that occurred to me watching the movie, mm-hmm. which is that I don't think memories are all that. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? Um, well, right, but but in theory, the premise of the film, I mean, this is the sci-fi aspect of it, the premise of the film is that presumably reliving the memories in the tank are far more vivid, I well, would Well, no, what I mean is, is that... Yeah. I think emotions are addictive and emotions okay. are appealing and the emotions we feel while reliving something in our mind mm-hmm. are the things that we take pleasure in. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. What we don't take pleasure in is like remembering every fucking detail <laughs> because often some of those details might wind up marring the picture we have, right? Dan, why are you laughing? I have an awful, I have, I'm, I'm laughing because the, I have an awful analogy, and I'm not sure I should say it, but the awful analogy is, let's say you make a sex tape, okay, yes. and then you watch the no, sex that's good, tape, that's good, that's good. and it turns out that there are some angles which you are not meant to see your bone body. Yes. That's the way I would put that it. Is, yes. That is a good metaphor. Or, the, or okay. there's a, like a shot in a mirror where you see right. you know, exactly. how, how yeah. terrible you look. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that that's true. I, I do really believe... That emotions are are drug like, in mm. in a way. Yeah. I mean, there is actually you know there are two twelve step programs for people dealing with emotions. Uh, there's Codependence Anonymous and also Al Anon, which is for the friends of loved ones, friends and loved mm. ones of alcoholics and addicts. And those mm. are basically about being addicted to taking care of someone or being addicted to needing someone's approval. And I think those things that is real. I think what people are and. Even in this memory thing, I think what they're really addicted to is the feeling they had. Yeah. And not oh, the yeah, fidelity. No, I, I and again, this, but this is where the movie doesn't use anything with its premise. Right. That's true. Because yeah. it, no, it's a good it, the point. fidelity of the memory doesn't matter. Right. It, it would actually be really more interesting if they had created a world in which you could alter your memories so they would be perfect. Oh. Oh, that is a good. Ooh, I like that. Right? Yeah, no, that would be this film meets Total Recall. I kind of like that. Yeah, I mean... That'd be interesting. Because yeah. the, the the fidelity of the memories sort of matters to the plot. Yeah. But it's not believable. It, it, I put it this way. I believe that the machinery or the technology that they use in this movie would be great for interrogations. That I agree. Right. Super good interrogation mm-hmm. technique because you do want all of the you details. Need- Right, exactly. Yeah, I do not quite believe that it's the thing that everyone wants to do, because again, you know these what? Memories I, are. I hate to, because if you go back and can remember everything that actually happened, it may not be what you thought it was. I hate to say it. The parallel here is to actually Christopher Nolan's Inception, which yeah. is a much better film. But the one thing that always bothered me a little bit about Inception was the idea of like if you can actually play with people's dreams. You know, in the end, Nolan creates this sort of rule where you can't actually manipulate the dreams all that much. And that always struck me as slightly weird because that would be the most interesting part about it, I thought. And it's the same thing here where, like, if you could, you know, adjust the memories, that would actually be legitimately interesting. I will add there's something else that the movie doesn't do, which is Mm -hmm. recontextualize memories uh, in the way that when, let's say, you have a betrayal in your life. Uh-huh. and you didn't see it coming. Right. This is when the fidelity of memories might matter. Oh, in other words, like, you could see, you could go back in the memory and say, oh, now I'm looking at this in a different way. That's that's actually legitimately interesting. 
I will say this, like, it's not just for good for interrogation. There's a way in which I would assume if you were a therapist, this oh, actually yeah. Yeah, might be a useful tool. Yeah. That would be the, the other way. And in some ways, they would have had to rejigger the plot. But, like, making Hugh Jackman a therapist, I think in some ways <laughs> would have actually been a better way of, like, getting around this. But that would be that, very in- innovative noir, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last thing about this section is I thought that New Orleans shootout was terrible. <laughs> um, I was so disappointed about how long it went. And also, I was watching this movie with a friend, and she comes in, you see someone fly back having been shot, and she takes aim, and there's actually a little bit of a pause on her taking aim. And uh, both my friend and I were like, she's going to shoot the tank. <laughs> yes, because that's going to be kind of the twist, right? Like, yes, instead, yeah. she, she proceeds to shoot a bunch of people while Hugh Jackman is drowning. <laughs> and always shoot the tank when Hugh Jackman tank is drowning. First. That's like, shoot that's the tank the, yeah, first. I, I mean, yes, I think, absolutely. you know, there's not many situations in which that's not a the thing you would do. Shoot the tank first. Okay. Yes. All right, let's move on to Act 3. Florida man is going to Florida man. <laughs> Back in Miami, Nick retrieves Watts' last reminiscence of May and realizes that May stole a record of someone else's memory. Uh, apparently, the memory is from Elsa, a longtime customer who we've seen previously, who relives her dates with a wealthy paramour. Nick starts looking for Elsa, asking around, acting like a real gumshoe, and learns that she was killed and that her kid, Freddy, was kidnapped by a redheaded woman who sure sounds a lot like May. Ruh-roh. Nick tries to find May and gets beat up by Booth, this cop from New Orleans. Watts and Nick go to get more info from the DA, but there's a ruckus because Sylvan has died. Walter Sylvan is the sort of, you know, land baron that was referenced previously. Nick sees Tamara, the widow of uh, Walter Sylvan, walking out. Tamara was apparently an early client of Nick's. Nick goes back into the memory tank to retrieve his memory of Elsa's memory and recognizes the voice of Elsa's lover as none other than Walter Sylvan. They deduce that Sylvan must be the father of Elsa's kid, and boy oh boy is that going to complicate the reading of any will. Also, Booth was apparently working for Sylvan. Nick wants to keep digging. Watts wants him to stop and live with her in the present. They argue, and he fires Watts. I just want to point out that the memory within a memory thing is kind mm-hmm. of cool. That was cool, and I also like... Like, it's a gesture a weird... towards an yeah. interesting idea for a plot. What I also liked, which was cool, was the legal point that you couldn't use a memory hearsay of a memories. memory. As here's that those were hearsay memories. <laughs> that was actually the one moment where I was like, okay, I'm liking. And actually, I legitimately liked that scene between yeah. Newton and and Jackman. That was in some ways the closest this movie came to anything that was emotionally real. I thought. I also appreciated yeah. that it was a truly platonic relationship. That yes. it was a, it was an intense but platonic relationship between a man and yeah. a woman. And I I would credit that to the acting. That's a subtle (laughs) thing to convey. It is. No, that's not easy to pull off in a film. Yeah. Especially between, I hate to put this to a very attractive people. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you might want to see. No, as attractive as Rebecca Ferguson is in this film, I actually, like, the most, like, intrigued I was was when you see Tandy Newton out, like, merge out of the tank wearing only, like, you know, like a, a. Intrigued were you, Dan? Yes, yes. Okay. I have a crush on it. Yes, that's the way I would All right, keep going. Okay. So Nick then decides to go to the Sylvan estate in the drylands and finds that Tamara has been burned, meaning that she's so stuck in her memory 
that she has trouble distinguishing reality from the past. She is literally reliving her memory with Walter, to the point of using physical props and men dressed to look like Walter in the past, and all I can say is, ew. Tamara confirms Nick's suspicion that Booth and May were working for Sylvan to dispose of Elsa and Elsa's child, Freddy. Tamara tells her henchmen to get rid of Nick, the way Walter would have wanted to get rid of him, i.e. to kill him, but the bodyguard recognizes Nick as a fellow vet and lets him off with a warning shot. Anna, it's time to get real about race, which we have not brought up so far in this film. I'm not surprised that the land barons in this film are all white, but this future Miami seems way more Asian than Latino, and this strikes me as hella weird, right? Yeah. Also, I would expect Afro-Caribbeans, and I would expect actually, like, uh, Near East Asians. I mean, I'm t- thinking about who's going to get flooded, you know? Yeah. Island Pacific Islanders. I mean, they wouldn't be on Miami, but, like, when you think about who you, the No, climate, it, would be, it would be the Caribbean. It would, as you say, it would be Afro-Caribbean. Right. That would be the, the most likely. Right. Uh, and, and also, group, I mean, yeah. yes, Asia's going to get flooded, but, like... But they're not going to come to Miami. Yeah, they're going to yes, be in the West exactly. Coast. And also, that's the problem. There is yeah. much talk about border wars, mm-hmm. and I assume they were talking about Mexico. We will get to that in the IR. The border wars thing actually made a little bit of sense to me, but I will say, like the other but thing, wouldn't that was you weird... see more Latinos if you'd had a border war? Yes, and also what was referen- the weird thing that was referenced at one point in New Orleans, St. Joe talks about how you know, New he Orleans was there would be when far this... underwater. By the way, yeah. Th- so this this again is another issue in which. The plot contradicts itself or the setting contradicts itself. So we're supposed to believe that, like, again, Miami is a sunken city, yet apparently New Orleans still manages to exist, which makes no sense. It would have been totally gone by this point. Not only that, though, this is a little weird point, but, like, apparently Miami has an excellent metro system, despite the fact that it's, like, (laughs) mostly underwater. And and also the train, apparently you could take a train from Miami to New Orleans, which also makes no sense, you know. So, like, it, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of sort of offhand references to things that then you see other things that, like, contradict that. And, yeah, that's a thing. I also think this is sort of where we get the noir plot introduced. Right. Like, we've had a mm-hmm. noir atmosphere-ish. And a noir character. And noir characters. Here we get introduced to the plot, and I don't think right. it's very good. <laughs> I think uh, the bastard child yeah. is pretty lame as a reason to go around killing people these days. You know, like I just well, but this isn't the one thing I will say is the bastard child in this case is killed not because of reputation but because of money. Yes, that was entirely it is true. But I, I still yeah. feel like it's not that interesting. Like yes. it's it's just oh no it, it is not. not an interesting way to have a noir plot unfold. I will point out yeah. that Chinatown, which in some ways this movie makes gestures to, mm. in a weird kind of like opposite way, controlling the water, mm-hmm. you know, up the ante for if you're going to have bastard child, you know, shit happen. That was weird. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I just I feel like it, there was something like really vanilla and lame about the plot that they chose to set him on the the wire he was chasing we swear we started laughing about this before there were no surprises in this movie <laughs> like, no none <laughs> in fact none. i meant to say this earlier when you were describing the opening scene my friend and i were like this has to be some kind of setup like it cannot be yeah. like the real way this movie starts <laughs> it feels weird and so when it turned out that that memory that the first part was actually Hugh Jackman remembering. We're like, oh yeah, of course. Like, it yeah. wasn't like a 
whatever, is a fake out of sorts. But the movie doesn't do enough of the fake outs. <laughs> so. Yes. No, it's, it's, the way I would put it is there are plot twists in this film, but there are no plot twists where as a viewer you go like, whoa, or like even, whoa, it, it's just. Or, it wow, all... I guess with that kind of technology, you could do that. Yeah. You know, that's sort of interesting. Anyway, yeah. let's 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 finish up, Dan. All right, Act Four. Nick burns up. On Tamara's tip, Nick heads to the recycling plants and finds Booth, who is all scarred up. They fight in the air, <laughs> they fight in the land, and they fight in the sea. Nick finally wins and puts Booth into the tank to retrieve his reminiscences, even though Booth warns him he won't like what he finds. Through Booth's memory, we learn that he recruited May to seduce Nick and retrieve Elsa's reminiscences, which she does. But you won't believe this. <laughs> she actually does fall for Nick um, and tried to warn him. She stops Booth from killing Elsa's kid, Freddy, and takes uh, the boy to a safe house. She also tells Booth that she loves Nick because she knows that Nick will eventually see this reminiscence. Then she ODs on Baca and dies. Nick, enraged, tortures Booth by making him relive his memory of getting his scars, namely being burned by St. Joe's henchmen. He then visits Sylvan's son uh, from Tamara, Sebastian, and confirms that he was in fact the one who hired Booth to kill Freddy so he could inherit everything. Nick gives Watts all of the evidence and also confesses burning Booth to Watts. Um, and in response to this, there are riots, I guess? Uh, whatever, yeah. Apparently, Hugh Jackman doesn't notice all the unrest in the city during the movie. The movie also does not notice really? all the unrest yeah. in the city. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty lame is what I'm saying. So Nick cuts a deal with the DA, uh, avoiding the death penalty and also avoiding prison, agreeing instead to go into the memory tank and relive his memories with May on an infinite loop, essentially. Fast forward, I don't know, 30 years, and Watts, now a grandmother, tends to him with flowers and other sort of loving touches. Mm -hmm. Anna, I want to talk about the character of Booth a little bit, who's played by Cliff Curtis in the film and is supposed to be this former New Orleans cop who's corrupt. It's just a weird performance. First of all, I don't understand why he has the New York <laughs> tough guy accent if he's supposed to be from New Orleans. I mean, literally, it's the most... I could do a New York tough guy accent the same way. It's like, why is he playing a New York tough guy accent? I just don't get... You know, it's just weird. Forget about it. Second, why does Booth warn Nick about his memories of May because those memories wind up confirming all of Nick's like deepest hopes in some way. It's very strange. Like he was going to find out that she actually loved him, which is just weird. I don't get why he warned him. You're right. Uh, it is okay, weird. Thank you. <laughs> I'll just say that. It's just weird. And yeah. also the New Orleans accent thing bugged me too, because yeah. Southern accents are also pretty easy to pull off. You need to make them consistent Although New Orleans is tricky, uh, like a Cajun uh, accent. It, actors do wit all the time. That is what I'll Fair say. Yes. And also, yes. it's just so characteristic. If you say New Orleans, if a character is from New Orleans, you know, Nolans. like yeah. you have to have them sound like it because that's the whole point of being from New Orleans. Anyway. Right. Why, why make something happen in New Orleans if you're not going to take advantage of all yeah, that? Exactly. Yeah. I did think that his fight with Booth had some amazing cinematography. Mm -hmm. Like really cool, just shots. I, I also think it went on too long, like every other fight scene yeah. in the movie. But it also like they the you know Lisa Joy clearly knew these were cool shots. <laughs> like they they go on for like a minute too long or something, like or a few seconds too long. And then finally, 
The femme fatale with a heart of gold. <laughs> well, just call, blow me down. I was not expecting that. I wanted this movie to be more cynical. I really did. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't, it also isn't isn't really noirish to just have it be no. like, and she was a good guy all along. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and it turns out she really loved him and she saved mm-hmm. the kid and she never meant any harm. And she, <clears throat> you know, killed herself in order to avoid having she to- killed herself by ODing on the drug, even though we never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever, 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 ever saw her high off of anything. Yeah, I'm sorry, it just, that just bothered it, me. Yeah. And then also somewhat small point, although it could have worked in the plot. Hugh Jackman torturing Booth. Mm. I also, I think it's just something in the movie that I just keep saying Hugh Jackman rather than Nick because like, <laughs> it's just, it's Hugh Jackman. Um, but yes. Nick torturing this guy to death in, in one of the most obscene ways I could possibly imagine. And then it, were we still, still supposed to root for him? Like, are we still supposed well, to... I will- I guess the way I would put it is it is appropriate that he then pays a price for that. But, Although he doesn't seem to pay that yeah, much. Yeah, I was going to say the whole reliving memories with May is what he wanted. If you and if you say memories are drugs, it's like going to an opiate addict <laughs> and being like, "Here, use opiates for the rest of your life." Okay, but here's my point though. When the when there you will said be no consequences sure. whatsoever. When you weren't sure that the director said there were two happy endings, what you just complain about does slightly contradict that because clearly, oh, 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 at oh. least from the char- from the frame of Hugh Jackman's character, that is a very slightly happy ending. Well, I see. I don't, I don't think that's that. a happy ending. See, I agree. I think yes. that sounds terrible. You know. Yes, but Hugh to Hugh Jackman's character, I, uh, that sounds fine. That's the only let, way. Let's I'm, put it this I'm way: I can see more why the DA agreed to it as a punishment. <laughs> yes. Then I can see why someone would be like yes that's what i want to do for the rest of my life like why wouldn't you just die i mean like if you like you could just relive the memory once you know it's not like you get more out of it reliving it over and over and over well that's where it starts to cease to become believable like i was i kept wondering if you're just reliving the memory at some point don't you just realize okay it's like it's like dreaming the same dream and you eventually realize oh yeah i'm in a dream you know but yes well damn we need to get down to business okay dan Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, you're going on a journey. <laughs> a journey from this film to international relations. Just follow my voice. So I will say this. I actually thought there could there was some legitimately interesting IR in this film, but it was only really talked about at the margins. And the interesting IR is the relationship between climate change and war. So a generation ago, there was a vein of scholarship arguing that as climate change led to resource scarcity, that would lead to war. So there was a lot of talk about water wars, for example, in the Middle East, or wars for sort of scarce arable land elsewhere. Now, I'm going to be honest, in terms of the IR scholarship, that work has been, if you look at the sort of literature there, the research would at best be described as inconclusive, and at worst, really, it hasn't borne out. However, what reminiscence gets right is where climate change might actually genuinely lead to conflict. Because in part, there's always been two stages in terms of addressing climate change. There's mitigation and adaptation. 
So mitigation is, can you take steps now to reduce climate change to prevent the worst things from happening? Um, and one of the problems in international relations is that that is a classic public goods problem, which means that everyone is an incentive for everyone else to do their utmost and for you to free ride. So you have an incentive for everyone else to buy an electric car and you to have the Mustang because the Mustang is cool, would be the way. No one has and to make a sacrifice. Right, exactly. And so the problem is, is that everyone winds up free riding. That works. That is true at both the individual level. It's also true at the national level. And this is, by the way, is why we are currently in the fix we are in. Read the latest intergovernmental planet on climate or intergovernmental panel on climate change report if you don't believe me. Adaptation, however, to climate change is a very different story. And by adaptation, we are literally talking about things like protection against flooding, electric vehicles, alternative energy. These are actually, generally speaking, excludable goods. These are not public goods. These are private goods. And therefore, it is possible for states to erect this kind of infrastructure and try to prevent others from enjoying it. So it is therefore not surprising that most models sort of forecasting what the future of climate change looks like predicts first the developed world is going to cope with climate change far better than the developing world. Second, climate refugees will definitely be a thing. And third, there will be a fusion of conservative environmentalism and anti-immigrant hysteria. Because to the extent that, you know, for example, in the United States, there's a lot of loose talk about how the conservatives are just sort of climate change deniers. And that is certainly true of a large swath of, of Republicans. There are also Republicans, however, conservatives, who believe that climate change is absolutely real. And what they also want to make sure is that if the U.S. protects itself against it, it prevents hordes of brown people from coming in. And so when Hugh Jackman and others reference border wars, I totally believe the idea that if there is genuine climate change, there would be conflicts of immigrants trying to come in. And the film references that point with respect to discussing Nick's military service. So that part, weirdly, I actually applaud the film for getting roughly correct, even though it was a really minor part. I think of a very polite applause, like golf clap. Yes, exactly. It's a golf club. Yeah. But to be fair, not a lot of others have even talked about it. So Well, it's it's interesting fair. to look at The Expanse, you know, yes. and the way it deals with climate refugees. <laughs> yeah. Much more interesting way and much and more And presumably will be way. dealing with climate refugees in the next season. Yes. I'm looking forward to that, exactly. actually. Yes, no, let's put it this way. Between this and The Expanse, I really want to see The Expanse come back so we can talk about a good show. But this leads to the next point. Anna? Dan? Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Yes, Dan, but not in the way you might think. Ooh, okay. So Go on. it is cli-fi, which kind of gives it an automatically anti-capitalist bent, let's say. And the movie explicitly mm-hmm. has these riots and it has the evil land barons, right? Yeah. But I don't think that is that interesting. <laughs> I think... What the movie says about capitalism is the degree to which it destroys our our capacity for joy and love. Hmm. And okay. how it grinds us down so far, we need to do something that is mindless entertainment. And I would call this memory reliving, ironically enough, mindless entertainment. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I like this. It is yeah. It is literally backward thinking. It's not creative, right? There are no- mm-hmm. Nothing new comes into the world by doing it. In fact, yes. it's even more mindless than like TV, right? Right, because TV at least is encountering yes. something that you have not created. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And it keeps people from thinking about the need for change. Like talk about an mm-hmm. opiate for the masses, right? 
this would be that. Might be an interesting movie to have land barons intentionally hook people on memories. Mm-hmm. You know? And I will point out, <laughs> my boy Adorno, like, would absolutely <laughs> hate this idea and I think agree with me that immersive memories are, like, the worst form of, like, mass entertainment. It's the opposite of art. It does not make you think. It does not drive you to a creative um, force. It it does not expand your mind. It literally does not expand your mind, right? And I don't know if Lisa Joy intended this or not. I don't think she did. (laughs) (laughs) But the scene we were talking about where the fight with Booth, most of it happens in the remains of what looks like a performance art school. Mm -hmm. Nick slash Hugh Jackman enters the school through in a through a window that's clearly an art studio mm-hmm. and then they have this fight in a in a um auditorium with with a piano with yeah. piano mm-hmm. and to me that's almost like on the nose about this right like our <laughs> capacity for art has been drowned we can no longer make art instead we have to subsist with our memories of of art even so I think this movie did a really good job critiquing capitalism, but again, not in the way that the movie <laughs> Not itself, in the intentional way, I though. Might have yes. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. All right. So. Dan, what are those noises? What's that sound? Oh, my God. Oh, Anna, it's debris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've entered the debris field where we talk about the things that we didn't talk about earlier. Dan, what's in your debris field? Uh, a few things. First of all, in theory, in this film, Nick is a veteran who has a limp because of a war injury. And I'm going to point out that Nick's limp is in some ways a synecdoche, I think is the word, is the way you pronounce mm-hmm. it. It's symbolic of the entire film because the limp is sometimes there and sometimes not. <laughs> and much like the rest of the film's themes where it's like sometimes it matters and sometimes you it sort of subverts it. And it's I found that just sort of typical. One of the few things I actually thought that the was handled well in the film was the very creepy way that Tamara thought her son, Sebastian, was in fact Walter. Um, Shades of like, Chinatown. Yes, there we go. That was good. Who was the woman in the clapboard house? So like at some point, <laughs> May says that the person who gave her refuge was this woman in a clapboard house way off the coast of Miami. And that is where she takes Freddie. We only see this woman from behind mostly. We never learn anything what about her. The at deal all. is with her. At all. It was, yeah, it was, it was just sort of a giant, like, I, I have to admit, like, I, frankly, that character is more enigmatic than, than anyone else. And we just never learn anything I about I want to know her story. I really do. Like the house and the woman are, are brought up in this way that is, I think is supposed to give you some sense of drama or suspense. Like, oh, this must come up later. But the way it comes up later is just like, yeah. oh, that's where she took him. That's it. There's no, there's no yeah. you have no idea why May knows this woman. You have no idea why this woman knows why May. Why May there's would like, think no, of this woman, really? Like yeah. what, you know. Yeah, it's like literally you realize. How do the they get reason- groceries? Yes. <laughs> What is the plumbing situation like? I mean, there's, I've got many, like, do they have power? Like, there are many questions I have. One final thing, which is a more macro point, but but we talk a lot in this podcast about, like, good Mm. storytelling is showing but not telling. And it does strike me that one of the interesting things about noir is that there is hopefully showing, but there's also a lot of telling. The telling is in some ways part of noir. There are some noirs without any um, sort of voiceover narration, like Body Heat, for example, but most of them do have pretty you know extensive uh, voiceover narration and this film is no different except in this case i found the narration 
very annoying. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, there was the incredible number of mixed metaphors. Yes. And you could have just had the narration, actually, now that I think about it. You could just do the narration from this movie and not watch the movie. And mm-hmm. I think you'd get it. You'd get the entire plot. That would I, I, Hopefully someone on YouTube will do this. They will cut the film so that all you hear is the narration. Yeah. And like, can you figure out the rest of the film? And as the show not tell thing, and it is defender of noir, I, I would say that good noir... Yes, there is a lot of telling. There, t- there is often narration. But where noir can become art is often dependent upon the actors and the mm-hmm. cinematography mm-hmm. and the feel of the movie. Yeah. The way that it immerses you in a certain feeling, let's say. Like a good femme fatale is someone who you don't know what to make of her. Right. Right? She could be good. She could be bad. I think bad. But, but it's also, not sure, you know. But also someone you care enough to yeah. find out what the answer is. Yeah. And again, this was one of the problems with May. You know, you just, uh, she was, you didn't inspire enough no, interest. No, no, yeah, it was very, I mean, she's a beautiful woman. but it, And yeah. yet, when like Nick like drops everything when she first walks in. That's a very classic, you know, scene in noir when the right. gumshoe first sees the femme fatale. Yeah. She didn't seem, I mean, she's pretty, but it wasn't like, I don't know. There's an, No, the way I would put it is, so Rebecca Ferguson is, is again, very attractive. There was no heat. Yeah. That is the way I would put it. Yeah. yeah. I will say that this movie has some good quotes, although one of the problems I had with it is that it's overwritten. It seems really pleased with its dialogue. There were a few good lines, but the ratio of good lines to bad lines, the bad lines, there were so many more. Like yeah. there, were, there were a few lines where I was like, okay, that's a good line. I like that. But there were way too many times where he was like, no, don't say that. I would say the best line in the movie is actually incredibly good, which is mm-hmm. maybe memories fade for a reason. Mm. That is... I mean, that's like you could put that on a T-shirt or something. I don't know. Like that would that maybe be a good inspirational poster or, or an uninspirational poster as the case may be. The, one of the ones I really hated I w- mm-hmm. was, I think this is Watts uh, trying to get Nick on the straight and yeah. narrow, like to stop abusing our, your memories. Right. Uh, she says of May, May was an absence you wanted to pour your broken pour pieces your... into. <laughs> or like a pretty dress, like the, someone else said like, you know, you just wanted to pour all these sad memories into a pretty dress or something. It's I can't like, remember. You can't yeah. pour broken pieces into an absence. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> how do you pour broken pieces? Like, what would that pouring require? Like, pouring seems like it's water. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. I don't. And then yeah. we've already discussed. I don't think these endings are very happy. No. And to the extent that the kid being with the woman on the clapboard house. Clapboard house. Yeah. I guess that's happy, but I don't know. The like, kid we lives. Don't, we, don't, I, we don't find out much. Also, yeah. is it really the hallmark of a great person and someone who's super moral if they refuse to kill a child? Like, <laughs> instead just well, kidnap also, and instead just kidnap them? Like okay, This is also where the plot didn't quite work for me. So I'm like, oh, so let me get this straight. May shows up at exactly the right moment, yep. not to prevent Elsa from dying, but to stop the kid from dying. It's yeah. like... That's very convenient timing, film. Well done. You know, like it's it's just not. Yeah. It, it, and then, it's yeah. 
You know, uh, but speaking of absences, like much of I think what we both didn't like about this movie is what it could have done. Right. There are there's enough that's interesting in this film that you almost wish they could have like redone it or that and you know I, this is awful like there are times where you criticize a film because you're like I wanted to see this different film instead and this is not what you gave me. But in this case the most interesting elements of this film could have made a more interesting movie without the noir thing. Yeah. Or in a different movie. A diff- it would kind of almost have to be yeah. a different movie entirely. Yes. Like Yes. I, I mean I don't know, but um we talked about how the whole memory tank thing doesn't really do much for the plot. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I would also add one of the problems I had is like, why would you need to go in a tank? I mean, I guess it's just like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I well, don't know I, why I, I, you had to get wet. Like, what's the? I would assume wetness? that it was like a. I assumed it was sort of like a sensory deprivation yeah, chamber I, but where they're like not. I mean, it, they're oh, it's open. You know. I guess I. They, yeah, I'm. It's tech stuff. Yeah, Anna, right. Okay, I mean, it's just, technical. I don't know. Like it's, it's weird. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. It also seems like it might be really expensive to operate. And I don't know how like it works, like the whole business model. And then last, not only do we not see what Baca does to a person, yeah, like why invent a new drug if <laughs> it doesn't forward the plot in some way? Like why not just keep it something that we that already exists? Anna, I think it's time to move on to the Ted Lasso portion of Space the Nation. <sighs> I am happy to move on to that, Dan. Excellent. Here there be spoilers for Ted Lasso episode five, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this episode is about rom-communism, and all of our plot lines involve a degree of nodding to the genre or picking up cliches from it, depending <laughs> on your point of view. In this episode's A plot, a burgeoning bromance between Ted and Roy, complete with You Complete Me. Ted woos a reluctant Roy to coaching. It turns out, like everyone on the show, what Roy really wants to do is be part of something bigger than himself. Though I don't know how anything can get bigger than Sky TV. (laughs) Plot B, Nate needs a dose of confidence and what would a rom-com be without a makeover? There is a bit of edgy foreshadowing with Nate's psych-up routine, including spitting on his reflection. Mm -hmm. Mm. Plot C, Rebecca is still bantering on banter and tumescing (laughs) on tumescence. (laughs) But we get a not-subtle hint that perhaps her virtual Cyrano wears a mustache, if you know what I mean. Dan. Yes, Anna? I have very mixed feelings about this episode. Okay, do tell. And number one, I am not a rom-com fan. <gasps> <laughs> you might be shocked. <laughs> I'm not that shocked. But I, it, leave it this way, it doesn't surprise me I might be more of a rom-com fan than you are. So there have been lots of essays written in the past <laughs> few years about how the rom-com genre does not fare well if you look at it through the lens of Me Too. (laughs) And also that a lot of the behavior in rom-coms is psychologically abusive or stalkery, kind of depending on the level of intensity. So just... It depends on the rom-com, I'm just saying. Like, no, let me put it this way. So I'm a huge fan of, um, I think it's Carol and Sidey, who wrote a, mm-hmm. writes a comic for the AV Club called When Romance Meets Comedy. And she is a, I think, A, ardent feminist, B, a defender of the rom-com genre. And I would say that, that what you were describing are bad rom-coms. And there is no denying that there are rom-coms that are widely loved that are bad. But like, <laughs> so I'm not going to disagree with that. But like, I'll leave this way. All the things you're accusing rom-coms of, When Harry Met Sally, which you could argue is the height of the genre, has none of these traits. So I think it's possible to make a good rom-com. Anyway, let's move on to the other things I did not like. Okay, very Um, (laughs) good. Everyone is off their game, Dan. Uh Like, everyone. 
Like, literally, the team is off their game, but that's been for a while. Yeah. Ted seems to have an unusually tin ear for, like, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually needs a cameo uh, from the cook in the Greek restaurant to sort of get a good dad scene. Right. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the only good dad scene. Mm-hmm. And by good dad scene, I don't mean, like, a good dad scene, of course. I mean a good dad yes. scene. Right. And then I just... Where do they have the money to hire Roy? I mean, I guess maybe he's not doing it for money, but still, like, so the I, implication is that he has tons of money coming in from somewhere, right? Yeah, so this is the way I would put this. So first of all, I, without question, the weakest aspect of season two has been that there are plot elements that they've dealt with, that, that, that have happened, and they're not dealing with the repercussions of it. So we've talked about this before, but like Sam rejecting Dubai Air, and as a result, them clearly pulling their sponsorship... That would be a significant economic hit to the franchise. Uh-huh. And yet uh-huh. we never see Rebecca <laughs> talking about it. We never see any of them talking about it. That it, it's and, and this is just a loose thread and it's something that I don't like because it, it should be something that the show could deal with. Like I here's even my suggested plot revision for this, which is if you don't want to address like the seriousness of like Dubai Air and human rights and all and so forth, and I don't have a problem with Ted Lasso not dealing with that. It's not their bailiwick. You could have had, like, another big multinational coming in and just wanting to look good. Even if for purely cynical reasons, that's the way capitalism works. You could have done that, okay? <laughs> you know, you would have had, like... That is the way capitalism works, That is the way works, capitalism Dan. works. That is. You know, it's fine. It's almost guided like an invisible cynical hand. Something would have, like, you know, saved uh, the, the franchise. And then that problem is solved and we don't have to worry about it. But the way they've dealt with it is by not dealing with it, and that is a problem. We agree, Dan. I'm just going to say again, I said this in the episode about Sam, which is that it could have been really cool. Yes. Like, it could have been such an interesting, perhaps unexpected way to deal with something that all of us face. Mm -hmm. You know, any any kind of ethical person faces, you know, conundrums when it comes to consuming. That is actually also capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it could have been really interesting. Anyway, um, Dan, what did you like? About the episode. Okay, there were some things that I liked about the episode. Uh, first of all, the plot line of Nate trying to psych himself up starts with Rebecca sort of showing her routine. And Keely has the best line in the entire uh, episode in this, which, when after after uh, Rebecca does her sort of like dragon move, she just sort of whispers, fuck, you're amazing. Let's invade France. I love that. That was a good line. <laughs> I like Ted being happy about Roy having dated Gina Gershon. I would be happy about Roy dating <laughs> Gina Gershon. Everyone should be happy about Roy dating Gina Gershon. And also, I will say, in terms of plot lines, I do like Nate's self-loathing. That's a legitimately interesting storyline and not sort of a happy-go-lucky thing. I mean, I thought it was fascinating that Nate gets what he wants within this the context of this episode. But if your psych-up routine is spitting on your reflection, that is some, you have some serious issues you are wrestling yeah. with. And I suspect that is going to be dealt with as the show goes forward. And it might have something to do with his dad. Yeah, just, okay. <laughs> Who is not a good dad. Yes, there are definitely <laughs> some some we like, you know, dad issues going on there. And yeah, yeah, there's no denying that. But Anna, I know you. there were parts of this episode you absolutely disliked. I like this episode a lot more than you do, but surely there must have been things you did like about it. Well, one thing is, Ted defines rom-communism as believing everything will work out in the end. Mm-hmm. That is also literally communism. <laughs> So, that's so cool. wait, now I know why you don't like <laughs> rom-coms. Because since communism tends not to work out terribly well, rom-communism, yeah. You know, okay, but I get you this believe now. everything's, like, I, I understand. You believe everything's <laughs> going to work out in the end. 
I really thought it was going to be from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. I didn't needs. know. But in the what end. What comments? What crisis is the comments? That There's bastard no- was selfish is the problem. Anna, I think at some point we've both got to com- like coordinate, take sabbaticals, and write a Marxist rom-com. <laughs> okay. Anytime. The illustration of the pointlessness of sports commentary yeah. I liked. I thought this was a particularly apt invocation of the Roy Kent chant, which is amazing. It's a great chant. I loved it. When he walks onto the field, it's just like so good. And also, Dan, this episode had some IR. Oh, okay. Do tell. Do tell. I think getting Roy to be the person to break through Isaac's bad attitude, kind of a Nixon goes to China, right? Yeah. But by the way, this this I'm going to point out this does contradict your earlier criticism of Ted being off his game. I don't deny that Ted is not functioning on all cylinders, but this Ted, this particular choice, I, I'll give Ted that. Ted is right yeah, to no, have Roy being yeah. the one to to get through to Isaac. I mean, he has multiple agendas here, but the most direct one is Roy was the best person to try to reach Isaac. I think is also accurate. I completely agree. Yeah. He was off, but not completely. There off. There we go. Yes. And what do we learn, Dan? So I think we learned a couple of things. Like you, I like that punditry moment. The, the, the moment where Roy just sort of says in front of the camera, you know, we don't know. We're just on the outside looking in. We do, you know, and, and I will say, as you and I both fall into the, potentially the category of pundits, I will point out it is slightly <laughs> different talking about political analysis as opposed to sports analysis. Uh, because in terms of sports analysis, it's true. Sometimes there's stuff going on inside that you don't necessarily know about. That's occasionally true in politics, but you could actually argue that one of the problems with political punditry sometimes is the belief that only by knowing what's going on inside the room can you actually predict what's going on outside. And so there's limits on that. But I think the other thing, and this might be somewhat corny, but nonetheless true, the best brand is actually being yourself for most people. Most people are, you know, fundamentally good, appealing people. This might be the naive person in me, but like if you're yourself, you know what? You're probably going to, if you're more comfortable with yourself, trust me when I say, that's really goddamn attractive. (laughs) So noted. Yes. So what did I learn? Yes, what did you learn? I learned that the next time I go into a meeting and I'm nervous, first I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick and act like a (laughs) (laughs) T-Rex. Okay, Anna is acting like a T-Rex now, but I'm going to point out that Anna is not doing the T-Rex correctly. You have to do the little arms. arms. All right, right. so what is is a dinosaur? I guess it's more like um, That looks more like a velociraptor. It's a Bigfoot. Yes. That's a Sasquatch. I'm going to the bathroom and act like a Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Yes. Sasquatch. Yes. Okay. And the other thing I learned, Dan, is what I... I learned all the time. (laughs) Which is? Good dads are good. You know what? Good dads are good. That is a timeless lesson and really always bears repeating. And so, you know, as a dad myself and as someone who loves his own dad, not the worst thing to hear. Yes. It is actually my dad's birthday today. And he's not a regular listener to the podcast because, you know, like... (laughs) He has a life. He has a life. And also, like, not exactly in his wheelhouse. Although, he is a huge Stephen King fan, which is interesting to me. Not lots of genre, Mm -hmm. um, but he has listened to... My Stephen King podcast. Okay. Anyway, it is his birthday. Everyone call your dads on your on their birthday. Call your dads all the time. Tell dads your dads awesome. that you love them. They'll tell you that yeah. they love you. It's generally speaking a good thing to do. Good dads are good. Yes. 
Dan, we've come to the end of the episode, so I'm going to remind people to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and also become a patron at patreon.com slash space the nation. You get all kinds of goodies. We have an AMA coming up. You also get merch. You get episodes early when I remember to post them. (laughs) (laughs) And you get to be a part of our Discord community where they learn that I am been not able to post things. So join but us. But nonetheless, actually- our patrons love us and we love them. And so, you know what? That's also a good thing to remember. Next week, we're doing Fantasy Island. And after that, the end of October, Dan? Keep this channel open for more.